It's a pleasure to be back again with you this afternoon as we have the opportunity to open God's Word together. Uh, for years I've been associated with Whitehorse Inn, but I'm starting something new called The Humble Skeptic. Um, I was going to do a show called The Questions of Faith, but then I discovered somebody had already taken the title right when I was about to create the website. So uh, we'll be exploring, you know, with the... There are, there are a couple of passages in the Bible that actually encourage skepticism. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. And uh, there are a lot of things not to believe in <laughs> out there today. This morning, I'm going to encourage you to believe in this text that we have in front of us. We're going to be talking about the book of Genesis. And in particular, uh, we'll be kind of working our way through themes in chapters 29 and 30. Last time I was with you, uh, which was about a month ago, we took a look at Genesis 28, in which, well, actually the first time I was with you, we looked at Genesis 28, that, this was back in June, first time this summer, uh, and God appeared to Jacob as he was fleeing the land. You'll remember he, he had uh, deceived his father and his brother, and now he was, his brother Esau was threatening to kill him, so he was fleeing the land. And what's interesting about that passage is that God shows up in that scene with a great staircase, the stairway to heaven, and he doesn't confront, censor, or rebuke Jacob. He just simply gives him all the promises, gives the promises to this great sinner that had been communicated so clearly to Abraham and Isaac before him. You know, and what seems to be clear more than anything else as we thought about that text was that God had chosen to bless Israel's patriarch not because of his own righteousness, which is just exactly along the lines of what we find in Deuteronomy 9, in which God told, through speaking through Moses, uh, well, Moses speak, declaring God's word says, Do not say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you are going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of the nations that your God, the Lord your God is driving out, and that he may confirm the word that he swore to your fathers. So that is the reason the Israelites came into the land. That is the reason Jacob came into the land, not because of his righteousness, but because of God's mercy. Then last month when I was here with you, we focused on Genesis 32, which is actually 20 years later as Jacob is coming back into the land. So he first fleed the land, saw, you know, God uh, appeared to him in that scene. And then as he's coming back into the land, he has a meeting and confrontation with God once again. But as you recall in that moment, as Jacob was coming back into the land, he was attacked in the middle of the night by this strange and mysterious individual who turns out to have been God himself. God in the form of a man. Now, typically, when you read a story about a divine human character like Hercules, the narrative tends to focus on the hero's supernatural strength. But the odd thing about this narrative is that when the God of Israel appeared in human form and wrestled with Jacob, what we find was not strength, but the exact opposite. What was on display was God's weakness, since Jacob had actually prevailed in that encounter. This is what God himself says in Genesis 32, 28, when he told Jacob that his name should no longer be called Jacob, 
the patriarch's name, should no longer be called Yaakov, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. But why had God allowed himself to be defeated by Jacob during that strange encounter as Jacob was returning into the land of promise? Was this Jacob just really strong? Was he stronger than God? It doesn't really make a lot of sense. You know, in Genesis 32, Jacob's wrestling partner is identified as God in human form. But our Old Testament lesson this morning from Hosea 12, he's also called an angel. Did you notice that? According to verse 3 and following of Hosea 12, In the womb, Jacob took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. Those are kind of set in, in parallel. And what's interesting when you think about that is that as he's wrestling in Genesis 32, he thinks, perhaps, that he's been attacked by his brother. And yet we find out that later it's really God that he's struggling with. It says in verse uh, 4, he strove with an angel and prevailed. In his manhood he strove with God. The next verse, he strove with an angel and prevailed. So which is it? Is it God or is it an angel? Why, if it is God, is he called an angel? Well, it turns out that Jacob also used this kind of language when he blessed Joseph's two sons in Genesis 48. The text says that in that scene, when Jacob is blessing his grandchildren, Manasseh and Ephraim, he says he, he, he honors the God who has been my shepherd all my life, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Again, the same idea. It's God is the angel. Similarly, in Genesis 31, Jacob refers to the one who appeared to him on the stairway between heaven and earth as the angel of God. Oddly, Genesis 28, where he did appear as the angel of God, where he did appear, doesn't use the word angel at all. It just says Yahweh appeared. So which is it? Had God appeared to the angel, it's a patriarch or as an angel or as God? It, well, actually, it's both. There are numerous passages throughout the Old Testament in which the angel of God appears on the scene. But as you read and reflect upon those texts, it becomes clear that we're dealing with no ordinary angel. In fact, the Hebrew word malach, from which we get our word angel, can also be translated messenger or even more appropriately, ambassador. This is the one sent from God on some kind of mission. And in our case... The one who appears in these mysterious texts is the one sent by Yahweh who appears in human form and also happens to be Yahweh. In other words, the Trinity wasn't an idea invented in the New Testament era. But as you study the Old Testament closely, you begin to see that God has actually been revealing himself in this unique and strange way from the very beginning. From the very beginning, the Word was with God, and yet the Word was God. And a long time before that, a long time before the Word became flesh and dwelt among his people, as recorded in the opening of John's Gospel, he also appeared to the patriarchs of old. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is the one who appeared to Jacob in the vision of the stairway in Genesis 28. And it was Jesus who wrestled with the patriarch and changed his name to Israel there by the Jabbok River. By the way, this isn't some form of theological speculation. This is the great consensus of the early church, and it's also the great consensus of most of the major figures of the Protestant Reformation. 
As I mentioned the last time I was with you, Augustine believed that Christ was prefiguring the events that would later take place on Golgotha as he allowed himself to be defeated by Jacob there by the Jabbok River in Genesis 32. So just as Jacob and all his posterity were given the right to enter the promised land, not by their own strength, but by God's weakness, so too saints of the new covenant are granted the right to enter the ultimate land of rest, not by their strength or merit, but through the cross of Christ, which of course led Paul to conclude in 1 Corinthians 125 that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So what I'd like us to do today is to flesh these ideas out a little more by exploring some of the things that actually took place during Jacob's 20-year absence. Genesis 28, he leaves the land. Genesis 32, he comes back to the land. But he was gone for 20 years. And what happens when he's away? And so let's take a look at that this morning. And as we do this, I'll invite you to turn first to Genesis 29. This is the, t- the period, the 20-year period, as he stays with his kinsmen in the land of Haran. Just after he's left the promised land and he is reunited with his relatives. And w- the first thing that happens when he arrives is he falls in love with Rachel, who is described as being beautiful in form and appearance. But on his wedding night, Jacob the deceiver was himself deceived. Though he had worked for Laban, his uncle, for seven years in order to marry Rachel, the morning after his wedding night, he awoke lying next to her older sister, Leah. And so in verse 25 of Genesis 29, Jacob says to Laban, What is this you have done to me? By the way, this is one of those interesting parallels. That question comes up again and again in the book of Genesis. The last time it had occurred was when the wicked king, not the wicked king, the king of Pharaoh, Well, there are two kings, actually. Uh, This happened to Isaac and it happened to Abraham, where Abraham and Isaac try to pass off their wife as a sister, and then the the king discovers it and then says, what is this you have done? But the first time it appeared was in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve committed high treason and sinned. And God is the one who says, what is this thing you have done? This question sort of echoes and Uh, over time throughout the book of Genesis, as sin grows and magnifies, not just out there amongst the pagans, but here in the community of God, which is also pagan. Paganism isn't a problem out there in the world. It's in all of our hearts because we're all idolaters by nature. What is this thing you have done to me, says Jacob? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Again, what this seems to be is an echo of earlier events, just as Rebekah had instructed and suggested to Jacob to wear Esau's garments in order to deceive Isaac. So to Laban, Rachel's brother, instructs Leah to wear Rachel's wedding garments in order to deceive Jacob. And just as Esau suffered as a consequence of Jacob's deception, so too Rachel suffers since her sister has now taken her place as Jacob's wife. 
In fact, according to verse 31, the Lord opened Leah's womb, but Rachel was barren. And that contrast between fruitfulness and barrenness is exactly what we find when you compare the two twins, Jacob and Esau. You see, once Jacob had lied by dressing up in his brother's clothes and received the blessing, we're told that he received the blessing of the promised fertile land of Canaan. Whereas because of his brother's treachery, Esau ended up inheriting the dry and barren land of Edom. Rachel's barrenness also reminds us of Abraham's wife, Sarah, who for the better part of her life was completely barren until God opened her womb. And so in light of this challenge, how will Jacob, we're meant to ask, how will he obtain offspring? How will the promise of Abraham that in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed, how will it come to pass? At this point in the story, though, he really loves Rachel, Israel's patriarch, you know, is while he's loving Rachel and working an additional seven years for her, he's now having children through Leah. He's perhaps following the advice of Stephen Stills in his old song, if you can't be with the one you love, honey, love the one you're with. According to Genesis 29, verses 32 and 35, Leah, quote, conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore another son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she named him Simon or Simeon. And she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me. And I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name shall be called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and this time said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Here we begin to see the, the, we're witnessing the birth of the sons who eventually become the heads of the 12 tribes. Basically, this is what we might call an origin story that serves to explain the circumstances in which each of the 12 sons were born. But here's where we, again, discover something very odd. This is not your typical origin story. Here we discover that, you know, this text is explaining that future leaders of the nation are presented not as valiant heroes with omens and portents that hint of their coming greatness. Rather, what we find here is rather embarrassing. Leah, the unloved wife, is bearing children to Jacob and is giving because of her husband's lack of love. And because it's such an overwhelming and present reality for her, she gives names to her children that reflect that sad reality. Then in verse 8 of Genesis 30, we're told that, quote, when Rachel saw that she bore, by the way, we should also, we shouldn't pass over the name of Judah. She's, she has so, uh, she has named her children these different names that show that she's unloved. And then finally, she shifts at some point and decides to name one of the children Judah, which is, well, it's not about my husband. <laughs> Let's just praise God for it this afternoon. Uh, so that is remarkable because Judah, as you know, is a very, has a very long pedigree, Jesus becoming uh, the one, the lion of the tribe of Judah. It isn't about her sad reality. It's more about the praise of God. 
In verse 8 of Genesis 30, though, we're told that when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. And Jacob's anger was kindled at Rachel because, uh, as he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her that she may give birth on my behalf and even that even I may have children through her. And so she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. In this part of the story, we see that Leah is not only the one who is wrestling with unfulfilled desire. As Gordon Wenham, the Genesis commentator, notes in, his, uh, in one of his books, he says, Both women, both of the wives, crave what the other has. Leah longs for Jacob's love, and Rachel is desperate for children. It's very interesting that in verse 8, uh, Rachel describes, uh, characterizes her relationship with Leah as a kind of wrestling. This is the very thing that Jacob had been doing all of his life. And she describes it as wrestling in which he has prevailed. But that wrestling is, so again, we're seeing parallels between the two children of Laban with the two children of Rachel. Leah and Rachel are wrestling and Jacob and Esau had wrestled. In fact, Jacob and Esau, the two twins, had struggled together in the womb and had been wrestling with each other ever since. And in his struggles with his older brother Esau, Jacob also prevailed, given that he was able to eventually receive his father's blessing, albeit through means of trickery and deceit. He was born sort of with that heel catcher kind of spirit, which is why he was named Yaakov, which literally means heel catcher. He was tripping up, deceitful. After wrestling with her sibling, Rachel ended up naming the second child born to her Naphtali, which in Hebrew sounds very similar to the word for wrestling. Listen again to the words she uses in verse 8. With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. Now the translation that I just read to you there from the ESV is actually a little on the interpretive side. In Hebrew, the word mighty there in that text is actually the word Elohim. It's the Hebrew word for God. Now, as it turns out, there are some English translations that actually bring that language into the text, and some of they read this way. With the wrestlings of God, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. In fact, the word for God appears in the three oldest translations of the Hebrew. So the Greek Septuagint, the Latin Vulgate, uh, various Aramaic translations, the oldest ones we know, that kind of a translation is, is here, although it's dropped out in most of our English translations. But as we reflect on the passage as it stands in its original Hebrew, Rachel seems to be wrestling both with God and her sibling. Gordon Wenham, again, the Genesis commentator, observes that in some sense, Rachel sees her struggle with Leah as a contest in which God was involved, for he, has, he opened Leah's womb but shut hers. And so after wrestling both with God and her sister, Rachel concludes in verse 8 that she has now prevailed. 
But how has she prevailed? She prevails by means of her own ingenuity and striving, rather than waiting patiently for God to act. Basically, Rachel has taken matters into her own hands. She is scheming just like Sarah had done so many years earlier. And what was the result of that? What was the result of Sarah scheming and telling Abraham, go into my maidservant Hagar and have children? The result was the birth of Ishmael, who was later completely cut off from the covenant. So then what are we to make of the parallels? If the parallels are real, which they seem to be, then shouldn't the children of Rachel's maidservant Bilhah be excluded from the covenant? Well, this would be two of the children from the 12 tribes. And while we're at it, shouldn't the children of Leah also be sent away since Jacob only became married to her by means of deception and trickery from Laban? What is really going on in this text? It's such a strange narrative that one doesn't expect when you're reading the origin story of the founders and the fathers of the country. Imagine reading this kind of story in the life of George Washington or in your own family tree. Well, the one thing that is for certain is that this isn't the kind of story you'd make up as you're celebrating the founding fathers of your country. This is real history, and it's messy. And if you know your own lives, it could be a source of comfort as well. Because God doesn't simply leave them in their sin. Paying close attention to all these parallels, though, is a really helpful way to read the Bible. Because at the end of the day, it's, kind of, it's letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Think about it for a minute. We know that surrogate pregnancy was very common in the ancient world. You know, you'll find it in the Code of Hammurabi. And this is why it was so appealing to Abraham and Sarah. It's like they, they have this ready-known fix for this problem of infertility. She's getting up there in age, and it's not reasonable that she would get pregnant, and so let's just do the reasonable thing. But the text makes clear that what they thought was a reasonable thing was actually not the way to fulfill the promise. It was, in fact, a dead end. And therefore, what lesson should be drawn as you see other characters pursue that same approach? Well, you know exactly what to expect. And so when Rachel believes that she has prevailed after having two children in that same way, through, by use of her maidservant as a surrogate uh, pregnant wife, we know that this really isn't truly prevailing, though Rachel thinks it is. Now put all this together with the account that we find in Genesis 32. Jacob is wrestling with a man who has attacked him in the dark. The entire chapter leading to the, up to that event is basically been set up to explain how much Jacob is coming into the land fearing his brother. And it's just dripping with, with sort of the honor and praise and the paying him off, all the, all the things that he's, he separates his, his family. He goes over across the Jabbok River by himself because he feared his brother that he would attack the mothers with their children. So it's pretty clear once that he's attacked that he would no doubt be thinking in his head, okay, I've been attacked by my brother. I can't see, it's dark, uh, but my brother and I will wrestle this thing and will settle this thing once and for all. 
So as I had mentioned earlier, Jacob had also, he had been actually wrestling with his twin brother all of his life. And in that scene from Genesis 32, it turns out that he was wrestling not with his brother, but with God himself. And mystery of mysteries, he actually prevails. But now what happens if we compare this with what happened two chapters earlier? where Rachel says, in my wrestlings with God, I have wrestled with my sister and I've prevailed. Jacob, sorry, yes, Jacob was wrestling with what he thought was his brother, was actually God, and he prevails. There's a literary and thematic parallel here. And they couldn't be clearer. Rachel is wrestling with her sibling, which is also somehow a a kind of wrestling with God, according to the strange language from the original Hebrew. This also will become more clear as we go on down into the text. But if we use this passage to help us interpret what what happened in Genesis 32, perhaps we should likewise conclude that Jacob too has not actually prevailed by means of his own strength and striving. This is important because as I told you guys last time I was here, many people try to attempt, they, they attempt to show that Genesis 32 is all about the fact that Jacob is striving with God and tenaciously refusing to let him go until he gets his blessing, which, of course, provides the important moral lesson in that interpretation. We, too, are called to wrestle and strive with God and refuse to let God go until we get our blessing. It's a very common, it's the most common interpretation of that strange chapter. But if you've been paying attention to all the internal clues, you'll notice that the narrator has already made clear that the striving, wrestling, prevailing theme is actually a dead end. It's very clear here in our text this morning from Genesis 30. The wrestling and assumption of prevailing is a total dead end. It's not the way of blessing. In verses 9 and following of Genesis 30, things get even more crazy. When Leah was no longer able to conceive, she gave her servant Zilpah to Jacob as a wife, which results in the birth of Gad and Asher. Now notice what happens next. Verses 14 and 18 were told that in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came home from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages. She has prevailed. God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband, so she called his name Issachar. What kind of a text is this? What's happening here? If you're a little confused by this part of the story, I don't blame you at all. It is a little confusing until you understand there's one little fact from the ancient world that could help. In the ancient Near East, mandrakes were thought to be a cure for infertility. Which is why Rachel wants them so badly, because she's still infertile. Even though she has two children through her own 
maidservant, Bilhah, she's still unsatisfied and is found to be longing for children of her own. Another Genesis commentator by the name of Walter Brueggemann insightfully comments here that the Genesis story is all about barrenness. After Sarah and Rebecca, we are not surprised, he says. There is no easy solution. There's no natural way toward the future. The future of Israel will not be worked by human mechanizations, not even by mandrake. Now, Leah eventually does give Rachel the mandrakes, but only after she's allowed to sleep with her husband for the night. Here, we once again get another glimpse of Leah's sad reality. She is so unloved by her husband that she must resort to paying a kind of wage in order to sleep with him. And yet on this night, on this night, Leah conceives once again and bears a son whom she calls Issachar, which in Hebrew sounds like the word recompense. In other words, this is why, this is what she earned after paying a wage. Once again, we need to ask, is this the way uh, that God fulfills his promise to Abraham? Is this the way the promise will be fulfilled? Is this the origin of the 12 tribes of Israel? If this was something that was found in your family tree, would you celebrate it? Well, I think the answer to these questions you know, once you reflect upon all this, it demonstrates really that God is the only hero of this story. The God who patiently reveals himself and all of his mysterious promises to the people of this sinful and polygamous clan. It's fascinating, isn't it, that though Rachel, who is ultimately the one who uses the mandrakes, she, she acquires them, gets them, uses them. She remains infertile. <laughs> but Leah, who sold them, and uh, Jacob goes over to her place, she conceives. This is probably the narrator's way of uh, dismissing the effectiveness of fertility potions as one of those silly superstitions of the ancient world. God is the source of life, and he moves when and where he pleases. The same thing could be said of our spiritual life as well. Which is exactly the point, by the way, that Jesus uh, explained to Nicodemus in John 3. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Gordon Wenham once again says in his Genesis commentary, It is into this most bitterly divided family that the forefathers and the twelve tribes were born, fathered by a lying trickster and mothered by by sharp-tongued shrews, The patriarchs grew up to be less than perfect themselves. Yet through them, the promise to Abraham took a great step forward to their fulfillment, showing that it is divine grace, not human merit, that gives mankind hope for salvation. Well, according to verses 19 through 21, Leah conceives two more times, resulting in the birth of Zebulun, as well as a daughter whom she names Dinah. But then... A dramatic shift takes place in verses 22 and 24. And let's read these verses slowly. This is chapter 30, verse 22. Then God remembered Rebekah. Sorry, Rachel. God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her heart. Sorry, God listened to her and opened her womb. 
She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. God remembered Rachel. This is what we've been waiting for all along. Just as Sarah and, uh, you know, had lifelong barrenness, that lifelong barrenness was ultimately resolved not by her own striving, but by God's own timing. So here, God graciously intervenes and opens Rachel's womb in his own time. Many Bible scholars have pointed out that Genesis 30, verse 22 which says God remembers, remembered Rachel, is very similar to Genesis 8-1, which is right there in the midst of the flood story. In fact, it's right there in the middle of this grand chiasm, this structure that goes A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Boom, you get to G, and then you start backing up, and you do the, al- the alphabet backwards back to A. All these thematic parallels, but the center of the story is God remembered Noah, Genesis 8-1. In fact, there's a chiasm here in the Hebrew in this scene, too. There's these thematic parallels at the very center of which is God remembers Rachel. This was, in fact, the very point of the narrative. It's the moment in the Noah story when the waters begin to subside, And it's the point here in this story when the chaos begins to sort of drop into the background And we, as the readers, are intended to reflect on the fact that something really important is is going to happen. It's meant to grab our attention. In the midst of the chaos, something significant is happening. Who, then, is the child born of Rachel's barren womb? In verse 24, we discover that it is none other than Joseph. Joseph, the future savior and rescuer, not only of Israel, but of all Egypt. In his youth, he had strange dreams that his mother and father and brothers would one day bow down before him. And because they were so offended by this, his brothers plotted to kill him. And so they threw him in a pit and later decided to sell him into slavery for 20 shekels of silver. Yet through God's providence, Joseph would in time be elevated to the right hand of all power in Egypt. In fact, he was richly displayed in these royal robes, and everywhere he went, all the people throughout the land bowed down before him, the narrative tells us. And it was during a great famine that this same Joseph was responsible for saving the lives of many people in the region, including, of course, his own family. He even calls it a great redemption. Now, in a certain sense, we could see the story of Joseph as a kind of first-level fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham when he was told, in your seed, in your offspring, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Since the word earth can also be translated land, it's possible that many of the people who experienced all the, the blessings that Joseph provided saw in him this sort of fulfillment of that Abrahamic promise. Since all the surrounding nations and also the Israelites had indeed been rescued and delivered and saved. But you and I, of course, know that Joseph was not the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise and that his life was just a small hint of much greater things to come. Things that would be done in the fullness of time when the word who became flesh dwelt among his people and redeemed not just the Israelites, but people from every tongue, tribe, language, people, and nation. Being despised and rejected, crucified, thrown in the pit of death, only to rise triumphantly on the third day. 
not only not long after that, he sat down at the right hand of all power and authority. And at his name, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's interesting, isn't it, that the very thing Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50, you meant evil against me as you threw me in the pit. But God meant it for a good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. It's amazing how similar that is to what we find Peter saying in Acts 2, just after Jesus ascended into heaven. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. All the wicked things that the rulers of Israel did to Jesus, they really did do with evil intent. In their striving and in their struggling, they were trying to make it happen on their terms. Yet somehow, mysteriously, God intended that for your good and mine. Now think about the parallels, some of the parallels that we've considered this afternoon. Rachel wrestled with God and her sister and she prevails. But she hadn't really prevailed, had she? She still longed for children of her own, and in the fullness of time, after her striving and her trying to do this herself stops, God acts. God remembered Rachel and opened her womb. And when she finally conceived, this was good news of great joy for her. And some 30 years later, as her son was elevated to the right hand of Pharaoh, this became great news for all the people in the land of Egypt. So now let's think about the parallel to Genesis 32. Jacob, we're told, has wrestled with God and men and has prevailed, which is why his name is changed to Israel, which basically means struggles with God. But how can a mere mortal prevail over God in a wrestling match? Does that even make sense? Clearly, Jacob is not stronger than God. Therefore, we must conclude that God has simply allowed himself to be conquered. Therefore, the ultimate lesson we're meant to draw from this passage by paying close attention to all the parallels is that we should not tenaciously strive, that the point is not that we should tenaciously strive with God in order to be, in order to prevail and therefore be blessed by him, but rather that we should see Christ and his gracious gospel revealed to us in type and shadow in this passage. The gospel is in type and shadow, but actually Christ is there, physically wrestling with Jacob, allowing himself to be beaten and conquered. How did the people of Israel enter into the promised land? From the very beginning, it was by grace. And mysteriously, it also happened to be through his weakness, through God's weakness. That's how the Israelites not only entered the land of promise from the beginning, but it's also the very meaning of their name, Israel. You think you're struggling and striving and doing it yourself, but it's actually the God who appeared in that moment to Jacob face to face, at which caused Jacob to say, my life has been delivered. He didn't actually conclude after he had been informed of the identity of his, after it sunk in who he had been wrestling with, he said, my life has been delivered because I've seen God face to face. 
This is how all of us enter the promised land, the ultimate land of rest. We do not earn the right to enter the heavenly Jerusalem by our striving, as Paul so clearly explains in our New Testament lesson that we read earlier. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Here's another thing to think about. From which of the 12 tribes did Jesus descend? He's the lion and tribe of Judah. So what part of the story did Judah play in the sections, you know, we read here? Well, all we're told is that he was the fourth child born to Jacob and Leah. But think about that. You might have expected Jesus to descend from Joseph's line, given all the thematic parallels you see between Joseph and Jesus. But as it turns out, Jesus actually descended from Judah. In other words, that which Laban did with sinful intent as he tricked Jacob into marrying his oldest daughter, the unloved Leah, God somehow mysteriously meant for all of our good. For if Jacob had never married Leah, Joseph would never have been born. No Judah, no Jesus. In some ways, one can see this story about the birth narrative of the children of Jacob as being emblematic of the entire history of Israel. The children of Jacob are emblematic of this entire history of Israel. The nation of Israel, you see, is it's barren. It's barren for much longer than just two decades, as in the case of, you know, something like when Sarah hears the good news or Rachel. No, Israel's actually spiritually barren for a period that spanned almost two millennia. You could read about that long history of her spiritual barrenness throughout all the Old Testament books. There you'll encounter an almost infinite variety of deceitful schemes, sibling rivalries, and human striving. And in those pages, you'll even find a king who looks though he may actually be the child of promise until you turn the next page and find him, find him acting like a peeping Tom and committing crimes that even make Hittites blush. Brothers and sisters, this is not just Israel's story. This is our story. All of us are spiritually barren. We've all tasted the forbidden fruit. We're all naturally curved in upon ourselves, which results in sibling rivalries, discord, hatred, division, fear, doubt, insecurity, covetousness, lust, and murder. By nature, we're all all estranged from God and are unable to make our way back to paradise. But though all of this is true about us, there's also another story that is revealed in these pages of this most amazing book. In the fullness of time, God remembered Israel in the midst of her barrenness. In the womb of a young maiden by the name of Mary, who had never known a man, he implanted a seed that would undo the curse of the fall. This is, as Isaiah says, the root that came out of dry ground. This is the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15, who would one day crush the serpent's head. Brothers and sisters, as we've seen once again, Israel is not the hero of her own story. She is just one nation among many whom God chose to be the recipients of his holy promises. She is just a jar of clay. No, the God who remembered Noah 
and Abraham and Sarah and Rachel. The God who remembered all of us here gathered this afternoon. He is the true hero of the story. But he is unlike any hero this world has ever seen. Since while we were yet enemies, he intervened on our behalf. In fact, it is in his weakness that we've been rescued, and by his death that we've been granted life. He was cut off, Isaiah says, from the land of the living, so that we could dwell with him forever in the heavenly Jerusalem, which is why he, and not us, is the one deserving of our worship, honor, praise, and glory for now and evermore. Let's pray. Almighty God, graciously grant that your word, which we have heard this day, grant that it may take root in our hearts by faith. May your gracious gospel be deeply planted within us, within our barren hearts, to the end that we may cease from our strivings, deceitful schemes, and instead rest in your gracious gospel, that we may rest in the promises that have been fulfilled in your Son, by your Spirit work in us true repentance, that we may love and serve you faithfully all our days, and grant that we may too be used by you to lead those who are lost to worship our great rescuer, redeemer, and king. All this we pray for the honor and praise of your holy name, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.